Here we go. This is 20 questions with Pastor Mike. Yes, I'm wearing a shirt with cockatiels on it. Yes, I have a jar of gummy bears behind me. But that's not what this is all about. <laughs> what we're doing is learning to think biblically about everything. So that entails taking your questions, whatever's on your mind, and answering them with biblical answers. At least that's my agenda. That's my goal. I don't pretend to know everything about the Bible, but I do pretend that I've been studying the Bible for quite a long time and care very much about what it says. I think that's not pretending, actually. I really do. And, um, and I think that there's incredible wisdom and untapped resources in the scripture for each one of us as we study it and learn it better. So this is 20 questions. This is question number one. We do this every Friday at 1 p.m. Pacific time. That's California time. I don't know what day or hour that is where you live, but you can figure that out. Here's the first question. This is from Mark Conley. If repentance is required to be saved, why is it not mentioned in the Gospel of John and other evangelical texts like Acts 16.31 and Romans 10? Can repentance be somewhat synonymous with believe? And uh, Mark, this is a, I'm, I'm really like excited to get certain questions. This is one of them. I'm excited to get this question because there is been this sort of divide in, in, in agreement, some dis, a disagreement, a pretty big disagreement. And some people on one end call this, they take a side that some people call lordship salvation and the other people take a side they call like um, free grace or easy believism or something like that. And those terms, I don't like either one of them. Okay, free grace is, doesn't make sense anyways because of course grace is free. That's what makes it grace. It's, if it's grace, it's free. Like that's kind of just a tautology. But the, um, uh, but the issue here is, is repentance part of the gospel message? And I think it is. I think repentance is part of the gospel message. But I want to offer clarity before I answer your question. I want to offer clarity and say, I don't think repentance is an action. I think it's an attitude of the heart. So I'm not suggesting that actions of performing works are somehow part of the gospel, part of getting saved. I think they're something that happens after you're saved. But rather there's an attitude. Lord, I've been living my way and I want to live your way. Lord, I've been doing my own thing and I want to do your thing. Lord, you're Lord. You are Lord. Like I submit myself to you and no, I haven't fixed my life and no, I haven't fixed all my problems mentally and, and in sin issues and stuff, but I'm turning to you with my heart, not just with my head, not just with the head knowledge of, I believe Jesus died and rose, therefore I'm saved, but rather there's a sense of commitment because belief in, in a biblical sense reply, implies commitment. So yes, I do think belief is sort of like repentance, that idea of attitude repentance, changing your mind uh, from sin towards God. I think that that is in the idea of belief. So I think it's in the gospel of John. But those who push back against my my teaching here, and I have a whole video teaching about repentance. There's a link down below where I say you must preach repent as a Christian. Um, and I have a video in there for that. But the people who push back, one of the things, one of the talking points they use the most is this idea that, hey, Mike, in the gospel of John, which according to John, it was written so that you may believe in that very gospel, the word repent is never used. And so their conclusion is, since the word is never used, the idea of repentance is not there. Therefore, you don't have to repent to believe. You don't have to repent to turn from your sin in order to come to Christ. I think first off, I want to acknowledge this. That is a shocking argument, but it's a very weak argument. And I will use the word bad argument. This is a very bad argument. The absence of a word in John, in this case, repent, does not imply rejecting the term repentance. But that's that's what we're we're doing with this, with this argument. So when someone asks this question, why isn't doesn't John say repent? Whatever your answer to this is, your conclusion should not be 
because you don't have to repent when you turn to Jesus. You could just be totally committed to your sin. You could have no intention to change your life. You could just say, I intellectually agree Jesus died and rose again. I'm going to go living my sinful life. I'm not going to pray. I'm not going to seek the Lord. I have My heart does not want God, but I believe now I'm saved. Like that, that, that would be a horrible conclusion. So let me give you some examples of why. Um, the word grace, right? Those who are in that sort of free grace side, they would say that the word grace is very important. But do you know the word grace is absent from Matthew and Mark? Matthew and Mark, the Gospels, they don't have the word grace anywhere. Now, do they have the idea of grace? Yes, they have the idea. But they don't have the word grace anywhere. Does that mean that Matthew and Mark reject grace, that grace is no longer part of the gospel message? Because they're gospels, so grace isn't... Do you see how bad this reasoning is? This is like a very clumsy way to form theology. The word God is not in the book of Esther. Does that mean that Esther is atheistic? No. <laughs> uh, no, that's weird. So I can give some examples in scripture here. Um, in John chapter 3, let me let me take you to the text itself. Um Here we go. In John chapter 3, this is what we do. We want to think biblically. So let's ask the question, is the idea of repenting, is the concept of turning from sin to Christ, is that is that idea there, right? That turning isn't just intellectually leaving, but it's this idea of moving away from sin, like at least in my heart. And John 3.19, it says, this is the judgment that light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that the works, um, that his works have been carried out in God. Now, the light in John is talking about Jesus. He's the light. He's the light of the world. Right? Um, you know, John 1 establishes that this concept of light is about Jesus. So he's saying people, when they don't come to Jesus, when they don't believe, when they don't trust in Christ, it's because of their wicked works. What is this implying? This is merely implying that the idea of turning from sin to God, that is embedded in John's concept of belief. That's what it's suggesting. Turning away from sin towards God, that that, that you know, internal turning, that that's part of the experience of, of becoming Christian in John's mind. Um, this is clear in 1 John because John writes in 1 John about how to even tell the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian. And he talks all about behaviors. He's like, hey, it's the way you live your life. Read 1 John and ask me if he doesn't think a attitude change towards sin is part of this whole Christian thing. Um, in John 12, here's another verse for you. John 12, 24. It says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Then Jesus applies this to our lives. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. You have to hate your life in this where there's an attitude about choosing the life and the light that Jesus presents, the lifestyle, the love, the, 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 the righteousness that Jesus embodies, choosing that life over this world, which you'll see the way the term world is used. It's connected to sinful lifestyles in, in John. And so um, <clears throat> there's another example of the idea of turning uh, John, same chapter, John 12, verse 40. We have another one here. Um, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. This is where John's quoting Isaiah. Isaiah is clearly a call to repentance. Um, they're called to turn from their wickedness, turn from their wicked ways, and to serve and seek the Lord. And this is obviously the same call that Jesus is presenting to the people. So 
that in <clears throat> the word turn here is strepho in the Greek. And according to the BDAG lexicon, that's B-D-A-G. If you just Google BDAG lexicon, you can find what I'm talking about. But it suggests that this is to an experience an inward change to turn into change. The context of Isaiah would imply this is about sin as well. I think it's just weird that somebody wants to suggest um, that, uh, that repentance is not part of the gospel. If you understand that repentance is an attitude change, and not a perfect sinless lifestyle. Like that's not what repent means. It doesn't mean you live a perfect sinless lifestyle from, from then on out. If you understand it's an attitude change from sin towards God, then it's just part of belief. It's the other side of the coin of belief. And that's my view. I can give you other verses. John, I'll, I'll just give you a few you can look up on your own. John 14, 15, John 5, 14, um, and then read the book of 1 John. Uh, notice what the Holy Spirit convicts us of in John 16, 8. Right? That is sin, righteousness, and judgment to come. Why is the Holy Spirit convicting of sin unless there is an attitude of turning from sin that isn't part of the whole believing experience? So yes, now you also asked in this first question, and I'm sure we've got tons of questions coming. I'm going to do 20 today, even if it takes a little while. And um, <clears throat> in, in your question, you also asked about Acts 16.31 and Romans 10. And let me just, I'll do one of these. Acts 16.1, I've already covered so much ground, so I won't do the whole chapter of Romans 10 here with us for this first question. But Acts 16, what says, Paul came also to Derby and Lystra or Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was believer, but his father was Greek. Is that the verse you wanted? I must've read something wrong. Acts 16, 31. That was it. Let's go there. And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. You and all your household. Okay. So they say believe, but they don't say repent. The term repent is not mentioned in that passage. Now, here's where somebody would want to go beyond the text um, and suggest they didn't say repent, so repentance is not present. Now, my view is believing implies an attitude change from sin towards God, so there's an attitude of repentance in believing automatically. Like it's already there. So I would I would look at this and say, oh, it's already there, just like you suggested. But, <clears throat> um, Mark, let's look at this other place in Acts where it says... Let me find the text real quick. Um, Acts 17.30. This is something that they preached all over the place. That Paul says he preached everywhere he went. Acts 17.30. He says, right, the times of ignorance God has overlooked, but now God is commanding all people everywhere to repent. That's right. So this is the a universal thing that Paul teaches. And Paul goes around telling everybody this. Um let me see. Um, oh, there's another place in Acts where he mentions that this is the message he brings everywhere. He's talking to, I think, King Agrippa, and he mentions that as well. The verse escapes me at the moment. But we'll move on to the next question. This is question number two, and <clears throat> this comes from Zoe Abundant, who says, um, what do Orthodox Christians believe versus Protestants? Is their doctrine as problematic as Catholics? I've heard Hank Hanegraaff converted to it. Thanks for all your thoughtful and in-depth content. All right, I'm going to ruffle a few feathers here, but um, <clears throat> but here's my, my current unfinished thoughts, right, on the Orthodox Church versus, say, um, and Orthodox here we mean, like, as, because you, you could use the word Orthodox referring to, like, um, correct, you know, traditional, correct biblical views, Orthodox Christian views. In that sense, I'm Orthodox. But when you put, like, a capital O Orthodox, it's like, think of it almost like a sect within Christianity. Um, now, Orthodox Christians tend to be very confusing. Their their beliefs and their doctrines are difficult to discern 
to those who they say, they say, have a Western mindset versus they have an Eastern mindset. And the implication is that they have like the more traditional, more, you know, correct understanding of things. But the more I learn about them, the more I'm kind of like, oh, this seems kind of strange. <clears throat> Let me give you my understanding of Orthodox. Orthodox Christians have a load of traditions that are not biblical and don't trace back to the apostles, but they are absolutely confident they do. Just like the Roman Catholics are absolutely confident that their traditions trace back to the apostles. I think that history will show that they, <clears throat> they actually have a lot of extra traditions, but what happened was as the church um, organizationally was adding more and more traditions and more and more of man's ideas into the word of God, something Jesus warned us against, something that Paul warned us against, something that the Pharisees are an example of what we don't want to be. But as people started adding more and more traditions, um, some of these traditions divided, divided them from each other. So the Roman Catholics, their traditions became more, <clears throat> let's say more sectarian and the Orthodox broke off and they split from the Roman Catholics. And so they have many things in common up till around seven or even as late as like 900 AD. They have, have some things that seem to be very much in line with the development of tradition. And then later they split. Um, when it comes to their doctrine of salvation, I, I'm confused by it. I'm just confused by it. I'm not going to comment on it. Um, is it as problematic as, as Roman Catholic? I can't comment because I don't understand it well enough. Is it historic? Is it first century historical? No, there's definitely additions. And the whole, the patristic views that I, that I've looked at some of the organizational structure, that stuff is, is extra biblical in my opinion. Here's my short answer. If you want to look at a book <clears throat> I recently recommended to people, it's boring. Okay. Look, it's a boring book, but it's around here somewhere. Where is it? But it's um, from Paul to Valentinus. Um, and it's a, it's a book written by a historian about Rome. Okay. It's about Rome, but it also talks about some of the development of, um, patristic, uh, leadership that happened in Orthodox cultures as well over time, but it's really just a history book. It's not so much religious work. Now <clears throat> the, um, uh, the idea of Hank Hanegraaff converting to it, that's confusing to a lot of us. I'll just say what probably a lot of you are thinking, which is Hank Hanegraaff converted over to Orthodoxy. That was a surprise to a lot of people. And then he seems to have changed many of his views, but he said he didn't change any of his views. And that seems very confusing. And I think people ought to be confused. That is confusing. He's like, I teach the same thing I've always taught. And then he goes on to talk about James two. And you're like, well, I don't think you taught that before. <laughs> and so it's confusing. This is, this would be the one criticism I'd have for Orthodox is like the Orthodox people I've met. Um, they're, they're more interested in outreaching and converting non-orthodox people over to their group than they are in actually being clear on what they believe and where they get this from. But I really want to be gracious to them and recognize I don't know all I should about the topic. I want to study it more. Uh, one day I'd like to get into that, but it's on a long list of things. So <clears throat> I would say this, stick to the simple gospel. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, right? That works are not operative in your salvation. So that's apart from works. I think that is biblical. I don't think that's reformation. I think that's biblical Christianity. And that's where I would want to camp out if I was going to discuss these things with somebody else. That's where I'd want to sort of stay. And if they have a weird authority that I feel is strange and unnecessary, that doesn't mean that they're going to like be not Christian as a result. The real issue is the gospel itself. And that's where I would, I would focus. Um, oh, side note, <clears throat> I have a friend who converted to Orthodox. When I asked them what the gospel was, they said they weren't sure anymore. Now, they don't represent this like high scholarly orthodox views, but it shows you that there's something going on, at least on the ground level, at least rubber meets the road in orthodox groups where it's confusing, right? We have lots of religious like 
lit liturgy and routines and practices that we, we talk about and think about and do all the time. But when it comes to how we understand the gospel itself, it seems confusing. All right. Buffy Cliff says, pastors often say what the Greek really says. Why don't translators use the Greek that pastors cite in sermons then? Like how Peter is akin to pebble, but is translated as rock. Um, Buffy Cliff, I want to say... Um, <clears throat> Pastors often say what the Greek really says, and this is not just about pastors. I'm not trying to criticize pastors in general here, but in general, when it comes to Greek, people often overstep the text. So um, the translators of your actual New Testament, if there's, if there's um, a dilemma they have, they, in my understanding, they tend to lean towards, um, towards not deciding what to translate that is. Right. So, <clears throat> so Peter could mean pebble, could mean rock. Okay. We're, we realize though, that, that we're going to be weighing in on a theological dilemma with our translation here. So let's translate in the conservative fashion that leaves it in the hands of the reader to try to figure out the right answer. So in other words, they're, tr they're not, here's, here's something that translators do. I think if they're trying to be humble, they try not to answer all your theological questions with the way they translate. The, a term that you might use for this is called preserving ambiguity. Preserving ambiguity, which is to say, okay, um, foreknow, an example this is in the book of Romans, where it says that God, whom, whom God foreknew, he predestined. Well, that word foreknow, it could mean for like foreloved. If you spin the Greek a certain way, it could be before loved. And that would be a very Calvinistic translation. Like that would definitely teach Calvinism and their understanding of predestination. But the Greek isn't really that clear. Like it's possible, but it's not clear. And so what translators usually do is they preserve ambiguity by saying like foreknew because you could, you could look at that in different ways. So I like that about translators. Look, if, if there's some ambiguity there, I, I would like it to be preserved so that I get to wrestle with this instead of you eliminating the struggle, but you've decided for me what I'll believe. I kind of want to work through that a little bit. Sometimes pastors will go overboard with Greek though. I used to hear all the time, I haven't heard it in many years, but I used to hear all the time that you know power will come upon you when the Holy Spirit, you know, you, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you in Acts. That's the word dunamis. And dunamis in the Greek, that's where we get our word dynamite. It's dynamite power that comes upon you. God's powerful power, his explosive power, and your life is exploding and you're a witness and da 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 and all that stuff. Okay, but here's the criticism of that. So dunamis does mean ability, but when you really look at the Greek, it just it's a generic word that just means ability. Ability. It could be applied to a very broad range of different things. It just means ability. Right? I've done the word study on this. Dynamite didn't even exist when the gospels and acts and stuff were being written. So when you see the word power there and you relate it to dynamite, this is very much not good Greek. How can you help, um, you know, avoid these things? You can get a Greek, a Greek resource, get a lexicon. Um, I think analytical lexicon of the New Testament is maybe a bit easy for people who don't know any Greek. I think that, and don't quote me on that. Like I'm trying to remember off the top of my head, there was one that was a little less confusing for people. BDAG, BDAG is the New Testament, like gold standard, uh, the, um, stands for the names of the authors, uh, Bauer, Art, Gingrich, and Dunker? I can't, I can't remember right now. <clears throat> Anyways, there you go. There's another resource. Bottom line is, um, I want the New Testament to preserve ambiguity if the Greek isn't forcing the answer there so that me as a student can look at the context of the, of the verse and try to wrestle through it. 
Peter? Did it mean pebble? Did it mean did it mean rock? Okay, well, Peter Petros was that because of, you know, you can have the debate. Have the debate. Look, go through the debate. Don't try to get the translation to answer that for you. That would be my recommendation. All right, number four, Adam Enoch says in Ezekiel 14.9, it says that if a prophet is deceived, it's the Lord who deceived him. Could you offer some explanation to this verse as it seems out of character for God? Thanks for your ministry. Ezekiel 14.9. Let me look at this. And I'm, I mean, I, off the top of my head, I'm not remembering this passage. So forgive me if my answer is subpar here. Um, if the prophet, if the prophet is deceived and speaks a word, I, the Lord have deceived that prophet and I will stretch out my hand against him and will destroy him from the midst of my people, Israel, and they shall bear their punishment. The punishment of the prophet and the punishment of the inquirer shall be alike. Um, okay. So there's, uh, let me back up and just read some context here. We'll see if it helps. Ezekiel 14. I'm going to restart at the verse beginning of the chapter. Then certain of the elders of Israel came to me and sat before me and the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, these men have taken their idols into their hearts and set the stumbling block of their iniquity before their faces. Okay, so step one, they've, they've, um, these are leaders of Israel, but they're idolaters and their hearts are for their idols and not for the Lord. Then he has a question. Should I indeed let myself be consulted by them? Here's the dilemma. Am I going to, um, so elders in the context of Ezekiel 14, elders come to the prophet Ezekiel because they want guidance from Yahweh, from God, from the God of Israel. But they're idolaters, and so the dilemma is, should God guide them? Therefore, speak to them and say, and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Any one of the house of Israel who takes his idols into his heart and sets the stumbling block of his iniquity before his face, and yet comes to the prophet, I, the Lord, will answer him as he comes with the multitude of his idols, that I may lay hold of the hearts of the house of Israel who are all estranged from me through their idols." So somehow the answer is going to be fitting to their idolatry. Therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, repent and turn away from your idols and turn away from your faces and from, from all your abominations for anyone of the house of Israel or of the strangers who sojourn in Israel, who separates himself from me, taking his idols into his heart and putting the stumbling block of his iniquity before his face. That is they're viewing, they have lies and they're putting the, these lies in front of their own faces. And yet comes to a prophet consulting me through him. I, the Lord, will answer him myself, and I will set my face against that man. So I'm not going to get a good answer. It'll be a bad thing. I will make him a sign and a byword and cut him off from the midst of my people, and you shall know that I am the Lord. And if the prophet is deceived and speaks a word, I, the Lord, have deceived that prophet, and I will stretch out my hand against him and will destroy him from the midst of my people Israel, and they shall bear their punishment. Okay, so here's, here's going to be my, you know, off the cuff understanding of this passage. It, it deserves more attention, of course. Of course it does. Um, uh, there's a group of people who are coming to, to Ezekiel. They want to receive prophecy. They want to receive a word from God. But their compromises in their life are such that God's like, you won't, you won't reject that. You won't repent. I'm not going to speak to you. So Ezekiel's message is to tell them to repent. If you notice in the passage, he goes, tell them to repent. But not all the prophets in Israel are as consistent as Ezekiel in that they'll just give the message, no, you need to repent. You need to repent. So if that prophet tries to serve, like think of Balaam trying to serve, um, uh, was it Balak? Uh, Balaam trying to serve the false, the bad leaders and do bad things. <laughs> if the prophet decides he's still going to try to work for these bad leaders, these sinful leaders, and he's not just perhaps telling them repent like Ezekiel is, then whatever they get from God will be something that is a lie. Um, is it? Does it mean that God's actually revealing prophecy to them? 
Uh, it doesn't necessarily mean that. It could mean that the man is simply prophesying of his own heart in Jeremiah. We read that this is a major issue in the false prophets of Israel. They prophesy from their own hearts. They prophesy the deceit of their own hearts. Oh, I really want to say nice things, so I'll just say nice things. We get this all the time. Modern false prophecy is almost always positive. It's rarely God's judging you. It's more often like all good news, all positive. Um, <clears throat> so the idea that God's deceived, though, that's obviously the part where you're the stumbling block. Wait, God deceived him? So one argument could be, well, God's deceiving them indirectly. So he's not actually like, God's not like lying to them, but rather God, God withdraws him speaking to them. And now their own hearts are speaking to them. And then out of their own hearts, they speak prophecies. They think they're being right on and led. They're like, um, Samson, who, when he went out, he no longer had the presence of God, but he didn't even know it. And so he was trying to do these things he couldn't do. It could be something like that. Um, alternately, can I say this? Um, there is some, okay, there's lying where somebody has like broken their word and they're untrustworthy. Then there is allowing people to have deceptions that is an act of judgment against them. And I think that God does this to people. I think that he allows them to fall into blindness, or you could even say he blinds them as a result of their own rebellion and sin. And that would be, okay, now they're blinded. Now they can't see. So they keep stumbling and falling as judgment. You could couch that as a type of deception, but it's not a kind of deception where God lacks character, right? L let's say that um, somebody breaks into my house and they're trying to hurt my family. And I make it sound like I have, I'm really dangerous and I have big weapons and I'm really not. Like you'd be like, Mike, you were, you were dishonest. That would, I would think that that was smart. Like what the person did was intelligent and thoughtful and wise. Um, I wouldn't think that was a character issue, even though it involved some level of misleading people. So I, I would lean that way. All right. I, I hope that helps. That deserves more attention. Don't take my answer as the final answer for everything. But <clears throat> let me mention to you guys, we don't have any more time for questions. I, I have 20 questions. They're all loaded here. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go through them now. And the next one is from Samuel Carvalho. And he says, uh, Romans 4 tells us that Abraham was saved because of his faith. He believed in God. How can we say just because he was saved that way that every else, everyone else in the Old Testament was saved that way? Also, if they, if they were saved that way, why did they have to sacrifice lambs? And if people were always saved by just believing in God, why was it necessary for Christ to come? All right. All right. Samuel squeezed in a bunch of questions. Let's take the first one, Romans 4. If, if Abraham saved by faith, why do I project that onto everybody? My answer is because Paul does, because the Holy Spirit does. Paul is building his case in Romans. Um, Romans 1 through 3, all have sinned and they're all condemned. Romans 4, and, and that our works will not save us. And Romans 4, here's how we're saved. We're saved by faith. But in Romans 4 in particular, Paul wants to build, and you got to read the whole book of Romans to see this, but Paul's trying to build a case that his doctrine of salvation by grace through faith, apart from works, that that doctrine is Old Testament biblical, not just New Testament teaching. So his example is Abraham. His whole point is we're all saved this way because look, Abraham, what shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? That's the Jewish forefather. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him as righteousness. Okay, you granted that much, Samuel, in your question. So Abraham saved by faith. And here as you read on, it's all because that's how you're saved. That's, that's Paul's whole point. Abraham was saved that way because that's how you're saved. Then he goes on and says, now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. Like if, if, 
if I'm saved by my works, God owes me salvation. But no, 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 no. It's grace. Uh, and to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. So what he's done is he says, Abraham had faith and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now Paul in verse 5 says, and to anybody, the one who does not work but believes, anybody, his faith will be counted as righteousness. So that's Paul's argument in Romans 4. He's, and then he talks about David. How David's an example. And then um, he talks about how it applies to everybody, not just the circumcised, but everybody. So that's Romans 4. Then you go on and you say, um, also, if, oh, oh, should I conclude that everyone in the Old Testament was saved that way? Um, yes, I think so. Because what Paul's doing is he's, he's giving us, this is how the economy of salvation works in God's plan. Um, if they were saved that way, why did they have to sacrifice lambs? I think that Hebrews, the book of Hebrews answers this for us. It says that these things were given as, as basically arrows, uh, Galatians says, as a schoolmaster to point us and lead us to Christ. So that the Old Testament law, the lambs, it was meant to teach you what Jesus was doing on the cross. And to help you with this, Samuel, think about it like this. Imagine if Jesus showed up in the New Testament and there was no Old Testament and there was no law. Jesus lives. He lives a good life. He dies on the cross. He rises again. But there's no understanding culturally of sacrifice, right? At least the idea of sacrifice for sin, that's not in the mind of the Jewish people. Um, the, the, the followers of Jesus wouldn't have understood it that well. What I'm suggesting is um, when, you, when you learn like a new instrument, you learn rudiments. Like you learn the ba basic things. You know, if I'm teaching guitar, I, I, which I don't do as much anymore, but I teach certain types of strums and I, I show basic chords. And then I'm teaching basic principles that are going to apply later on when you're learning more complicated things. The law gives you rudiments. Sin is bad. It hurts your relationship with God. Sin leads to judgment. But sacrifice, sacrifice is this thing that helps to deal with sin, where the sin is sort of paid for by somebody else's life instead of your own. And it's all animals. It's all insufficient. It doesn't do the job fully. Really, Jesus comes. He does the job. So Book of Hebrews talks about that. The Old Testament's there to give us the, the theological context so that we don't take Jesus and reinvent Christianity to mean something it's not supposed to mean. I think that's a message for progressive Christians nowadays who want to reject things like um, that Jesus was the one who suffered the penalty for my sin on the cross, right? The judgment of my sin fell upon Christ that, that I would have to, that I would be forgiven and not judged. Like that's deeply biblical. And if it wasn't for the Old Testament forcing this theology on us, I feel that we would reinvent Christianity. And you also said if there were, um, uh, if people were always saved by just believing in God, why was it necessary for Christ to come? So Jesus is how you can be saved by believing in God. Like if I believe in God, but there's no Jesus, that salvation doesn't come. Because God doesn't look at belief alone as though that's dealt with sin. Rather, I believe in Jesus. Jesus deals with my sin. Belief is the way I access, I access the salvation that comes through Christ. Abraham got it, even though he didn't have full knowledge of Christ. It was Jesus who's going to cover him when the time comes, right? Um, so everyone has been, everyone who is ever saved, Old or New Testament, is ultimately saved by Jesus and the cross, even though they had incomplete understanding of it at one time. We'll go to the next question, number six. Um, or did I already do number six? Let me see. Oh, I skipped two of them. I'll let Sarah Zimmer, my assistant, know. I skipped five and six. So I'm going to do 
six now, but it's actually from Felicia Woodbury, who says, Hi, Pastor Mike, could you please explain what long suffering means in regards to the fruit of the spirit? Um, yeah, so in real simple sense, long suffering, it's kind of in the words there. It's like suffering for a long time. But of course, like you could suffer for a long time and, and not have any fruit, any spiritual fruit. You could just be like, I've been suffering for a long time. I'm angry. I'm bitter. I'm jealous. I'm resentful. Um, I'm selfish. And so, so obviously long suffering is more than just suffering for a long time. Rather, I think what long suffering is about is maintaining godly character during suffering. That's what long suffering is. So on a good day, many people are good. When you're good on a bad day, that's long suffering. When you serve God, when you have suffering for a long time, now you're being long suffering. The example of this is God's long suffering love for us in that while we were still sinners, he sent his son to die for us. How many times would God have been very justified in judging the world, but he delays and delays and delays, and he keeps showing love and kindness, patience and goodness continue to be expressed, even though we deserve wrath. So long suffering is when you maintain the other fruits of the spirit while you're, while you're in pain, while you're in suffering, while you're going through hard times. That's what I see long suffering as. Number seven, this is from Ristaldo Henry, who says, when Paul says, I say not the Lord, but I, in 1 Corinthians 7, 12. Does that mean that the portion of scripture was not inspired? Love your videos. Super blessed by your ministry. Thanks. Great. I'm very happy to hear that, Ristaldo. Um, and this is a verse. Anyway, I just get excited about things. 7, 12, 1 Corinthians 7, 12. Paul makes a difference here, for those who aren't familiar with it, between what he's writing and what the Lord says. So naturally, the question is from Ristaldo, like, does that mean that this part's not inspired? Am I supposed to take like a segment of Paul's writing and go, okay, that's not the Lord? Well, let's read. He's talking about marriage and divorce. I'll just read verse 10 to give us a little context. To the married I give this charge, not I but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. So that he says comes from the Lord. Verse 12, to the rest I say, not I, or I, excuse me, not the Lord. So first he says, this is what the Lord says. Now he's like, this is me, not the Lord. If any brother has a wife who's an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman who has a husband uh, who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. So verse 11, that's inspired. Verse 12, not. Verse 10 and 11, inspired. Verse 12, not. Uh, no, actually, I think literally Paul means but when he says the Lord, I think he means I'm quoting Jesus. I have a direct quote from Jesus here. So when he says to the married, I give this charge. This is what the Lord said. This isn't even me, guys. I'm just echoing Jesus. The, the wife should not separate from her husband. Now this, if I could take us to the scripture here, um, we'll go to Matthew 532. This is Jesus. He says, I say to you, everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a woman, a divorced woman commits adultery. Uh, side note for those who want it, I have an entire teaching, long, long teaching on the topic of divorce and remarriage. If you just Google my name and the word divorce, it'll pop up several videos. The three hour long one is the one where I get into crazy detail. The point here though, is that when Paul quotes this, he's like not saying, um, here's something from the Holy Spirit. Here's something not from the Holy Spirit. Rather, what he's saying is here in verses 10 and 11, is a quote from Jesus. 
here in verse 12 is me and my judgment as an apostle of Christ. It's not, yes, it's Jesus didn't weigh in on the topic of a, a believing versus unbelieving marriage, right? A mixed marriage of believer and unbeliever. He didn't weigh in on that, but I do have something to share with you. So I do think we should look at that as still inspired. Um, and here's what's really cool about it. First Corinthians was written pretty early in the ministry of Paul. This is an apologetic moment for us, right? It's like written in the 50s. Paul writes 1 Corinthians in the fifth, like maybe 58. He's writing 1 Corinthians. And Paul has a quote about from Jesus that is attested in the Gospels. Now, this happens multiple times in 1 Corinthians, but this means that those who were going to act like what Jesus said was invented many, many years later, like when, you know, a whole generation later after everybody had died away. Well, like, no, because look, Paul here references the what happened in the Gospels. Um, at least on some counts, before they got most most scholars would say before the gospels were even written. So there's that's an interesting thing to think about. All right, number eight. This comes from Elijah Hernandez, who says, "Does God really love me, and am I really saved? I believe that Jesus is the Son of God, but I am still sinful and I struggle with sin. However, it seems that God answers my prayers. Am I really saved, um, Elijah? Oh, this is hard because I don't know you." And I would want to like walk with you and like live life with you to be able to try to answer this question. Um, what do I honestly think? I think probably yes, you're saved. <laughs> probably yes. Um, and let me give you a couple of reasons why in your answer here. Um, first off, does God love me? Yes. Even if you weren't saved, God still loves you. And he wants you to know him. Elijah, even if you weren't saved, like would you, like who in the world do you think God just doesn't love? That person doesn't exist. God loves us and it's not because we deserve it. It's because he is love. So you're looking at yourself maybe and you're trying to find qualities that God would love you for, but that has never been the grounding of God's love. It has been his lovingness, his lovefulness, his incredibly, you know what uh, Old Testament calls this chesed, the word chesed and it's like God's loyal love. It's like a word that's hard to translate into, into English, but God loves you. Yes, how do you know? He sent Jesus to die for you. Like that's the, the display of his love. That that should never be doubted in your mind that God loves you. But then you ask, am I really saved? And here's what you say. I believe that Jesus is the son of God. So I'm going to assume that what you mean here is you believe like the basic doctrines of Christianity. You're, you're believing those things. You've received the gospel. However, you say I'm still sinful. Well, so am I. And so is everybody listening to this live stream right now. They all deal and struggle with sin. And maybe they don't talk about it all the time. And I'm not sure that you're supposed to, but everybody always struggles with sin every day. And what happens is when you clear one sin off your plate, so to speak, because you've gotten really godly in that area, you just find that you have these other issues that you didn't weren't thinking about. And when you get these really obvious sins out of the way, you find these other sins become more obvious. And you're like, well, now I'm just am amazingly aware of how lazy I am. Man, that's very carnal of me. I didn't realize laziness was even a problem before because I was just focused on these other issues. Well, now I'm really aware of my pride. Man, my pride comes up all the time. My jealousy, oh, my insecurities and selfishness. You're always going to be aware of these things. They're always there because the flesh remains with you. And that's why when Paul writes about the, the battle we have against the flesh and spirit, he's like, walk in the spirit and you'll not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. What does that imply? It implies the normal Christian experience is that you have the spirit pulling on you and the flesh pulling on you all the time. That's normal. When you say I struggle with sin, I am assuming what you mean there is there's a fight, even though you may be losing a lot more than you want. 
I'm going to suggest that the fact that there's a struggle implies that there is in, inside of you this desire to serve God and to love God and to follow God. And you need to walk in that more and it's going to hurt you because you're, you're, you got this, you're losing the battle too often, okay? <laughs> like there, there's no time you want to lose the battle, but you're losing it enough that it's like really making, it's freaking you out. Elijah, establish yourself in the grace of God. Know his kindness and his goodness to you. And then get up and serve, not out of the paranoia of trying to prove that you're saved, but out of love and gratitude for what God has done for you. And I wish I could give you more full counsel. Those are going to be my thoughts to you with what little I've heard of your life. God bless you, Elijah. Seek the Lord. Trust his love. Trust his grace. Get up and live live better um, for your own conscience sake even. Number nine, John H. has a question. What are your views that God only created one spirit and gave it to Adam, which was then passed through the generations? This explains how God doesn't create an impure spirit at birth or generational curse. I think that all sounds very strange to me, John. <laughs> so um, sometimes people develop their theology by going, what if, and they don't need any proof of scripture to, 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 to demonstrate it. They just go, what if, and they go, that would work well, as in, and I hope, you, I hope I can explain this well, it'll be internally consistent. Like if I say A and B and C, then it'll internally be consistent. But the problem is that A and B and C aren't like clearly taught in scripture. This is what cults sometimes do. And I'm not suggesting you're part of a cult or something, John. Not at all. I'm not saying this. But I'm saying we can learn of the danger of this type of reasoning by recognizing that, say, Mormonism is very internally consistent. It's just not biblically grounded. So I don't want to say, hey, this would work if, if God made one spirit and he gave it to Adam and then that spirit was passed through the generation. So there's only really one spirit. Um, that would explain how God doesn't create an impure, impure spirit at birth because there's a, there's a dilemma. I don't want to say that, that um, everybody born has an impure spirit. Well, let me just say, I don't know what it means to be an impure spirit in that sense. I don't think babies are born with an impure spirit at all because even that I don't see as biblically grounded. I think we're born inclined towards sin. I don't think that equates to impure spirit. As if God has made something evil, implying that God did something wrong. Um, I don't think so. Now, there are other ways to get around this that are less, that are less flight of fancy type theology. So there's some who view that the soul or the spirit is somehow created naturally in the course of procreation. So that when a husband and wife come together and they create a new physical child, that at the same time, the soul is created. Like the spirit, I should say, I shouldn't say soul here. Let me be more careful. The spirit is created. Um, I don't have that view, but that would get around the idea that God is creating. Uh, there is a view of the spirit that's like God individually creates a spirit each time a baby is, is either in the womb or is conceived. But this is all going beyond what we know from scripture. So I'm not going to base my theology on that. I'm just going to back off this whole discussion and suggest I don't, I don't um, <clears throat> want to go there. <laughs> yeah. So my thought is um, uh, I have a different spirit than Adam. That's clear. I have a different spirit than you. The Bible uses the term spirit in a way that indicates that, that we have different spirits. Our, our spirits are different. So there isn't like sort of a pan-spiritism going on. So I'm going to reject that. And um, beyond that, I'm just going to not go there. All right, number 10. My husband isn't open to hearing me speak truth. So I stopped correcting him. Is this a sin? If he dies, he will go to hell. Um, Brandy, no. Um, okay, this is complicated stuff, but... Let me, let me take you to scripture on this, okay? 
This is a, a, a advice in scripture for a wife who has a husband who's an unbeliever. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands so that even if some do not obey the word, they don't obey the word, they're not going to listen to the preaching, they may be won by, without a word by the conduct of their wives. This is, this. in other words, your situation is not new. I can just lecture and lecture and lecture, but all it does is get rejected. And in a sense, it's like when Jesus says, don't throw your pearls before swine, unless they turn and they tear you to pieces. This could actually cause just problems relationally. I think it's okay to say, look, I've already preached the word to him. He's made his decision. Now I'm going to live the word before him. Maybe he'll be one without a word by, the, by my godly conduct. When they see your respectful and pure conduct, don't let your adorning be external or merely external, depending on translation there, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry and the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is in God's sight is very precious. So the counsel is, is yes, I think that it's okay for you to do that. It doesn't mean, though, if you see an open door, like a moment happens, Brandy, and you're like, here's the, here's the chance. I'm not hounding. I'm not. This is the perfect time. This is, this is the day I've been waiting for to talk to him about this again. Um, you may see that time come, but, um, but yeah, it's okay. Th that can be a godly way to witness. Now, I'm not inclined like some to say, um, witness at all times, use words if necessary, or preach the gospel at all times. Well, words are necessary, but we're not talking about someone who doesn't know who I refuse to tell, and I'm hoping that the way that I play disc golf is going to make them Christian. Like, good luck. Rather, we're talking about someone who has been preached to many times that they do know. Now I'm going to let my godly character follow up the gospel message with a witness to that truth of the message. I think that's a different scenario. All right, number 11, uh, MGYL says, is there a difference between a promise and a prophecy? Are all God's promises prophecies? I'm responsible. Uh, I, am I responsible if a prophecy told about me doesn't come to pass? A church leader told me those things. All right sounds sketchy to me, but let's talk about it. Um, and by the way, it's really healthy for us to be able to say about Christian leaders in our lives, pastors and leaders, that you can disagree in a particular area without having to like disqualify them entirely. Like many of you disagree with me in an area or another, and you're mature enough for the most part to say, I just think he's wrong there. It doesn't mean I'm going to ignore everything and reject everything he says. So I'm not trying to attack your pastor here or a church leader who told you this. But is there a difference between a promise and a prophecy? Um, a promise is, yeah, I'm going to do this. A prophecy is predictive. It has to do with like future. A promise could be like a, a, a uh, maybe maybe sometimes, well, how do I put it this way? Prophecies are promises, but not all promises are prophecies. Right? So um, I promise you that I love you. Okay, that would be like I'm putting an oath behind a truth, but it's not predictive at all. But prophecies seem like they're generally all promises, but it doesn't mean they're never conditional. They can be conditional. That might be the scenario you're talking about. So someone tells you about the future, like God, God's going to use you as a missionary out to this people group, but you know that you then dropped the ball. You knew you, you, knew you should have done this and done that. You should have sought the Lord in this way, and you just, you just dropped the ball. And so now it looks like that door, that, that window has closed, and you can no longer do that. It doesn't mean God has no plan for you now. Serve God the best way you can now. Get up and serve him. But here's where I'm going to push back. You say, am I responsible if a prophecy told about me doesn't come to pass? It's not that cut and dry. Because it's entirely possible that the prophecy about you was not really a prophecy. And that now you're being guilted because what somebody said about you that was not from the Lord 
never came to pass. I have had people speak over me this way. And you could and you could guilt me and, and act like, you know, but the truth is I'm pretty selective on who I listen to when it comes to someone telling me they have a word from the Lord for me. Right? Like we've we get we get stuff, sometimes we get messages through the you know, through the ministry here that are like, wow, like God's obviously not saying all of these things to me. Um I want somebody with a proven track record. And if you look at your life and you say, as far as I can tell, this prophecy was given and I lived faithfully as far as I can tell, then I would just assume the prophecy was either not true or it simply has not come to pass yet. I wouldn't just assume you did something wrong and then guilt trip people to make some prophet feel like he needs his ego stroked. Put it that way. (laughs) All right, number 12. Justin Tidwell says, what specific actions can one who has no empathy do to be kind? Um, and you're thinking of 1 Corinthians 13, how it says to be kind. Well, this is great um, because if you don't have uh, empathy, which is which I take to mean um, I sort of feel your pain, right? Like I sort of like I see what someone's going through and I feel a piece of that, like a little bit of that. It's almost like when somebody maybe empathy could be looked at like this. Somebody's eating a meal and the smell of the food is wafting up and you're not eating it, but you smell it too. And so empathy could be like, you have joy and that joy is wafting up. And I'm like, oh, I'm kind of, I'm a little joyous too. Or you're going through sorrow and I smell that, so to speak. And I feel a little bit of sorrow too, not to your level, but to some extent. But what if you don't feel that way at all? What if you just, you're just objectively like, well, there they are, they, they have joy. Um, that's, that's nice. I'm glad they have joy. Anyways. <laughs> All I'm going to suggest is being kind is just actions. Being kind-hearted is being thoughtful so I could just stop and think about others. I'm able to observe that they're having joy. I'm able to observe they're having sorrow. It's not like I'm unaware in that sense unless I'm just literally ignoring people. That's not a lack of empathy. That's just um, that's like a narcissism thing where I just don't even, don't even think about you. Like you don't, even, you don't even occur to me. You could be crying next to me and I'm like I look and I see and I just move on. But rather, if I actually care about what they're going through, um, at least intellectually care, I'm observing it. I'm aware of it. I'm paying attention to it. So then I go and meet needs. I mean, I used to, one of my first jobs was like Taco Bell. It was, it was my first job. Like you'd walk around the restaurant at first, right? And I'm just like with a broom, sweeping things up, picking up items from tables, throwing them away. I just know tables are supposed to be clean. Floors are supposed to be clean. Guests are supposed to get what they need. They're supposed to be happy. And I don't have to have empathy to do those things. I don't think you have to have empathy to do this. You could be very kind even if you lack empathy. Although it will be harder. But I don't see why this is an obstacle. Um, if a lack of empathy, natural empathy, is keeping you from being kind, I think this may be a bad excuse for ignoring obvious needs around you that you see and you just don't care about. Just serve anyways. Do it whether you want to or not. Because that's what obedience is all about. Number 13, Margie Rice says, I feel led by God to homeschool my teens. My husband disagrees. He doesn't want them to be sheltered. I want to submit, but I'm conflicted. Margie, my counsel to you would be um, that your task would be hopefully to persuade your husband and to pray suade your husband. (laughs) Is that a word? I'm making up words. Um, But that my counsel would be to, to, to yield to what he says there and seek other ways to, to meet the needs you see. So maybe, you know, if he's going to say, no, you know, I'm not, I'm not down with this. Even if he's wrong, 
it's not going to help your marriage to fight and to create the division. At some point, somebody has to submit to somebody. And scripture seems to have indicated that it is going to be a way you honor God by submitting. That means, guess what? He's ultimately responsible because he made that choice, not you. But you can then look for other ways to minister to your kids. There's, there's programs you could get them in. There's, there's other things you could do with them. And be creative about that. Maybe homeschooling is not the only possible solution. And trust that God's in control. The one time I would recommend that like a wife just like actually go against her husband is when like real and present safety issues are, are there. I think the example there is in the Old Testament with Abigail. I think her name's Abigail. Um, maybe. Um, anyway, there's, there's a guy who slights King David because he doesn't want to feed David's men, even though David's men, he's not the king. Well, he's anointed, but he's not officially in the office yet. He, the king's men have been protecting this man. Uh, is it um, Nabal? I think it's Nabal. Anyway, they're protecting this guy, and then he won't, he won't give them food or anything like that. And they're so offended that David and his men, who are men of war, they're going to go and kill this guy. And his wife, whose name I believe is Abigail, comes behind his back and brings supplies to David and his men. This saves his life. And David even tells her, he goes, I, I'm, I was so mad. I was, I'm going to paraphrase. I was so mad I was going to go and slaughter your husband. I'm glad you saved me from committing that sin, but you also saved your husband's life. I think the example there is of a wife who disobeys her husband in that sense, um, doesn't submit to her husband, but does so because of real and present safety issues. And that would be a justification. Otherwise, I think you should honor the Lord and seek alternate paths. That would be my understanding from scripture. If you guys want more on this, I have a whole teaching on wives submitting to husbands. And I go through the text on that. I go through lots of examples in scripture and explaining it hopefully carefully because we have two issues nowadays. One is understanding it biblically and carefully. Two is trying to defeat um, worldly attacks and stereotypes against submission as though it's oppression because they, they don't see a difference between those two words. All right. Number 14, John, uh, Glenn, John, I almost said John Glenn. That probably happens to you a lot. Glenn John says, free grace theology says that save in James 2.14 means from physical death or harm. All uses of the word save in James 2.14 is in the context of physical harm. So why is this different for you in 2.14? All right. James 2.14. The debate with James is, James is like, hey, you're saved Right? Does your does your faith save you? Are you saved by this faith, or are you saved by, or, or do you need works? I'm, I'm trying to word it carefully here, but failing. Let me read the read the text. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? Now, some the free grace side will say, and I have a friend who's like this who would say that the word "save" there doesn't, you know, "sozo" is the Greek. It could mean saving from anything. It could be like, you save me from paying taxes. You save me from getting hit by that car. You save me from, uh, whatever, eating, eating bad food or something like it could be anything, or it could also be salvation, like for eternal life, that kind of saving. Um, so they're going to say that this word save here is referring to something, not eternal life salvation, right? But let's read on. If a brother or sister is poor and, and can that faith save him? What's faith? What faith? Uh, can the faith that you say you have faith, but your life shows nothing, nothing of the evidence of your faith? There's no works to demonstrate your faith. Then the implication is that maybe your faith isn't isn't legit, right? Can that kind of faith save you? If a brother or sister is poor in clothing, poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace and be warmed and filled, 
without giving them the things needful for the body. What good is that? So also, also, also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. He's describing faith that's dead. This doesn't seem to be talking about like being saved from some physical harm, being saved from, from like, I don't know, getting like an illness of some kind. Like it just doesn't look that way to me um, in this context. Now, later on, when it says the prayer of faith will save him, save the sick, that may be in that context, but not in James 2. That's James 5. We're talking about James 2. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. Works aren't how you're saved. Works are not how you're saved, but works are how you demonstrate your salvation, how you show people that you're truly a Christian. You say, look at my life. It's changed now. This is pretty common sense to me, but it's, it's how I demonstrate it. Works aren't how you get it. It's how you show it. That's the context of James. Uh, Galatians talks about how you get it. James talks about how you show it. Verse 19, you believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demon be demons believe and shudder. Okay. Well, see, this seems to be talking about salvation issues, like eternal life type salvation issues. Do you want to show you foolish person that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham, our father justified by works when he offered up his son on the altar? I love that this came up in the same as Roman, same Q and A as Romans four. It's a good example. Uh, Romans four is saying, uh, Abraham was justified by God, meaning given righteousness by God through faith. James is saying, but Abraham went and after that lived a, a life that revealed he really believed. You could see his faith through the works he pro he, pro um, he performed. So Abraham was justified in the eyes of man. I'll add, but I think that's contextually accurate. In the eyes of man, he was seen to be truly a believer when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar. You could see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. So this, this whole idea of um, Abraham believed God and was kind of, he's not being saved from any physical harm. This is about the salvation of Abraham in the, in the theological eternal sense. That's the context of James 2.14. And that's why I take it that way. But why I don't think it preaches works for salvation. I think it teaches works from salvation. Works are the result of salvation. All right, number 15, uh, Jonathan Barang says, is all kinds of romantic kissing outside of marriage a sin? Could a Christian actor or actress do a kiss scene? Well, I'm going to make it really, really simple here. Um, th there's kissing that's outside your marriage that's not a sin, right? Like I know uh, I have, I, I don't, but a family who like, ki they kiss their parents on the mouth. But it's not romantic, right? Like this isn't what you're talking about. This is non-romantic. This is purely like familial kissing. There are some cultures where kissing is fairly regular. I have some people I know who kiss me on the cheek when I see them. Please, you guys, I'm not giving you permission. I don't know you. <laughs> but but um, but yeah, they, they do the family members who will do kiss me on the cheek or something. And I don't care. That's not weird. It's not romantic at all. But the minute you add romance into it, it starts to take on a new connotation. So we'll put it this way. If I'm married... And I romantically kiss someone other than my wife. That seems very obviously to be sinful. Easy. So doing that on screen, because I'm making money, because I'm pretending to be somebody else, does not make it okay. I think much of the romantic stuff we see on screen is sinful in its very creation, not just in what it's portraying. Um, am I counterculture there? Yes. But I, uh, I think that's just obviously true. Uh, am I open to being corrected on that? Absolutely. But usually the correction comes like this. Well, if you think that's bad, then you're just being too strict. And I'm like, being too strict 
is not a rebuttal <laughs> to anything. It's just, I don't like that strict view. That's all you were saying. Uh, but let's add to this. Let's say that you're not married. You're single. Would I tell a single person that he can't kiss his girlfriend, his romantic interest? Uh, I think I would leave that to their conscience and how, how much they kiss and all that kind of thing. I'd say, ooh, obviously there's a line, but I'm going to probably try to leave that to you to not cross that line and counsel you that when, when you sense this internal desire being stirred up within you in an unhealthy way that makes it harder to stay pure before marriage, then you've gone too far. Okay, so really, it, I would draw the line back pretty far. Um, but the idea that you can just go do this like on screen to pretend a romantic relationship like this just seems to me to defile the nature of intimacy between man and woman in a way that cheapens it and then turns it into entertainment for others. I do think that there's a lot of problems with it, um, which is unfortunate. Now, does that mean you should go around ripping on every Christian actor? <sighs> Even if what they've done is wrong, this doesn't mean they need the entire body of Christ calling them out on social media. There's a time and place for things. And just because they're very public doesn't mean everyone has to sit and talk about them and analyze everything they've done. There's something unhealthy about that that turns into gossip on our end. And so I'm going to ask us to use wisdom there. Number 16, Rachel Graff says, I'm an ethnically Jewish Christian and have seen that some believe that a Jewish and Gentile, that Jewish and Gentile Christians worship together, but with different lifestyle callings. This has been stressful input. Okay, so I, I think I'm understanding your question, Rachel, as this. Let me put it back to you how I think you mean it. Um, I hope I'm right. That there are some people who are teaching that because you have an ethnically Jewish background, you have a different lifestyle calling than, say, a Gentile Christian, one who doesn't have the Jewish background. Um, I don't think that's accurate. So I have a study I'm going to recommend to you. It's 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 where I went. It was in my Hebrew Roots series. I hope someone can put it up in the, in the live chat. Maybe one of my mods or somebody, I think I have to be a mod to put a link there, but it's in the Hebrew Roots series and I go through the book of Acts and how they handled the um, Gentiles and the law and Jews and the law in the book of Acts. And let me summarize for you my conclusion. If you typed Hebrew Roots Acts, Mike Winger in Google, you'll probably find it, but, um, or on YouTube. Here's my summary. When, when the gospel goes out to groups of Jews who are already observing the law, they usually continue observing the law. When the, and that's okay, and that's that's allowed. That's not rejected. We don't have to tell them to stop. When the gospel, like Peter continues, when the, when the gospel goes out to Gentiles who don't have the law, they are not told to obey the law, and the counsel is they don't have to because that's not part of what it means to be a Christian, a uh, follower of Christ. But here's the situation. When the gospel goes out to a Jew who is not already obeying the law, right? They're a Jew who's not obeying the law. This is a, a more special circumstance. They are not told to obey the law because of their Jewish background. They are not. So while the gospel didn't tell Jews to stop obeying the law or observing Passover or observing feasts or doing the sacrifices, that kind of thing, it didn't tell Jews who under other circumstances would be called to come back to Moses. No, no, they were called to go straight to Jesus. And under this new experience in Christ, they don't have to. Then you have guys like Paul. Paul seems to observe the rules of the law when he's with the Jews and he's much more lax when he's with the Gentiles because he sees this as an outreach opportunity when he's serving with different people. So he's 
observing the law more with the Jews, but never for salvation. If the question is, hey, do I have to do this to be saved? Paul will always say, no, you don't. No, you don't. My example doesn't mean that. I'm just trying to build a bridge for, for preaching the gospel to you. So there's my short answer. And I have a whole video where I go through the whole book of Acts to discover and track with how the law was applied to different groups. That's my counsel to you, Rachel. I will establish it with scripture in that video. And I'll put a link in the video description down below after I'm done for anybody who's looking for that. Peyton Hall has a question. So in Genesis 38, verses 7 through 10, someone was commanded to lay with his brother's wife and impregnate her. He didn't impregnate her and the Lord struck him down. Is God promoting adultery? Let's read the passage. <clears throat> I'll put it on your screen as well. Genesis 38, 7. But Ur, Ur, that's not... It's like, Judah, what do you want to name this 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 one? What do you want to name this one? This your firstborn son. And Judah was kind of like in shock. And he was like, er, and that. I know, my jokes are so good. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew. Okay, by the way, this is called Levirite marriage. Not about the Levites, but levirate marriage, which is the idea that you you marry a brother's wife. He's died and you marry. Now, the first child he that you have together, you raise in your brother's name. And he inherits the land that belonged to your brother. So it carries on the family name, which is very important, especially in a Jewish context where there's a, a specific land that's been apportioned out to different families and different, and different uh, tribes. So you don't want to lose that inheritance, right? So you raise up this child with the name of that that um, brother. And then every other kid you have after that is yours. Um, so Judah says to Onan, go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew, uh, where are we? Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground so as not to give offspring to his brother. So he, he wants to make sure she doesn't get pregnant is the, is the context here. I'm going to make sure she can't get pregnant because I don't want... Any, I, all the stuff my brother has, guess what? I want it. All his inheritance, I want it. I don't want to raise up another kid that's going to take it. I want to keep it. But by having his wife, I'll get his inheritance but by not having a kid for him. Yeah. So um, God doesn't like that. What he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord and he put him to death also. Then the story goes on. Now, what's interesting about Onan, it never says that Onan had another wife here. So you say, is this about adultery? The scenario is um, Ur dies, his wife is a widow, Onan marries her and refuses, he sleeps with her, but he refuses to have a kid with her. Onan may not, may have had, if it's possible, he had another wife, but we shouldn't read that into the text. I don't, at least I don't see it here in this particular passage. I also don't see God commanding this to happen. Um, my idea is that the, God's preference is that if you're married, you would pass on the opportunity to take your brother's wife. Rather, another brother who's not yet married would do it. That would be my understanding of how it, was, how it was probably supposed to happen. So even if Onan had a wife, it doesn't mean that that part was God orchestrating it. God's only action in this is God kills Ur because he's wicked. Okay, so he punishes him for his sin. God kills Onan because he's wicked. Because he is, is doing this to this woman and refusing to raise up offspring to uh, one of the children of Israel. So God's only action there is... Um, uh, 
is punishing of sin. We don't see God promoting adultery. Uh, I don't even know that. I don't think it is adultery. I guess if we could double check that by looking at Onan in um, in um, other texts to see if like in First Chronicles or something we, we read about um, does Onan have any other kids? Yeah, I'm looking at First Chronicles now. The sons of Judah were Ur, Onan, and Shelah, but we don't read about Onan again after that. So we don't read about Onan's other children. So it doesn't look off the cuff, it doesn't look like Onan had other kids, which would imply he had some other woman, because he definitely didn't have kids with this girl. All right. Let's go to the next one, number 18. Lovely day to serve the Lord has a question and says, Hi, Pastor Mike. How can we know if we genuinely repented from our sins? Well, so repentance is an attitude, uh, but it's an attitude that does end up resulting in visible changes in a life. Um, anyway, this is a question I don't even know how to answer. I just got to honestly throw up my hands and pro pro profess my ignorance. Here's the struggles that I have with trying to answer it. Um, if repentance equals you never do that thing again, then have how much have we any of us ever repented for? Not much. Not much. I think repentance is an attitude change. That attitude about sorrow over sin, turning from sin to God, if I teach it, treat it very generally like that, I think I can use the word repentance and just say, yes, it's, it's required as part of salvation, as part of the gospel. But knowing that Christians in the Bible and out of the Bible, you and me, struggle with sin on a regular basis, it seems to me that repentance is not perfect and repentance is not resulting in sinless life because you're still dealing with the desires of the flesh that you have to fight every day. And so, um, let me say, when, how do you, let me answer it this way. When you, how do you know when somebody has not repented? How do you know for sure there's no repentance when the attitude towards the sin is one of defiant intentionality? I'm going to keep doing it. What scripture calls high handed sins. I'm just going to keep doing this. I don't care. I, I'm not repentant. My attitude is completely committed, but somebody who keeps vacillating back and forth, they're like, Oh, I repent. Oh, I did it again. Oh Lord, I hate it. Oh, I did it again. I'm going to have a lot more grace on that person than the person who's just defiantly obviously unrepentant in their sin. I wish I could answer that better for you. That's, 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 um, hopefully somebody can. That's all I got for you, unfortunately. Uh, a coastal imagination or coastal imagination. Anyway, I can't quite figure out how to pronounce that name says, how do you respond to a brother or sister that disrespects you? Um, I usually don't. <laughs> More often than not, wisdom will rule and I will not respond at all. I think ignoring an offense is probably the best thing to do in most situations. I think that's probably the best thing to do. Um, let me find a, uh, let me try to find a scripture real quick that I think might help with this. Yeah, here we go. This is um, Proverbs 19.11. Proverbs 19.11, the discretion of a man makes him slow to anger. And his glory is to overlook a transgression. When someone disrespects you, your first go-to is to overlook it. As Jesus said, turn the other cheek. That's your first go-to. Now, disrespecting you is not the same as somebody sort of like extremely or blatantly sinning against you. In which case, our call is to go 
And even though we're the ones offended, Matthew 18, we're supposed to go and seek to be reconciled. We tell them, hey, look, this is privately between just the two of you, not on public, not when anybody else can read about it online, just the two of you, you privately say, hey, brother, I care about you. I care about our relationship. And yes, it sh you should start with something along those lines. And then you say, here's what happened. And that really hurt me. And I'd like to get past it. And you seek to reconcile, not just to vent. That would be my counsel. So first step, overlook it. If it's extreme, if it's continual, you approach them with an attitude of brotherly kindness where you're making known your intention to reconcile the relationship, not to destroy it. But then you openly tell them the truth. This, this hurt me. You did this and that hurt me. And then you see what happens next. Hopefully you win back that friendship. Number 20, Stephen with Passenger Ministries. Last question for today says, hey, Mike, what does Jesus mean when he says to make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth in Luke 16, 9? Thank you. Luke 16, 9, he tells a parable and he tells a parable about how this wicked man, this wicked man was really smart with money. And I'm going to read the parable to try to help understand what Jesus meant in that passage. We call it the parable of the unjust steward. Okay, so he says to his disciples, there was a certain rich man who had, a, who had a steward and an accusation was brought to him that this man was wasting his goods. This is New King James we're in right now, just for no reason. So he called him and said to him, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your stewardship for you can no longer be steward. In other words, you're fired because you're a bad steward. You're wasting my money. Then the steward said within himself, what shall I do for my master's taking the stewardship away from me? He's losing his job. I can't dig. And I'm ashamed to beg. Okay, so he, he didn't have other career options that he could do. He wasn't physically good at physical labor. And he was ashamed to be a beggar. And he was about to lose his position, which would make it hard to get a job like that again. I've resolved what to do. That when I am put out of the stewardship, they may receive me into their houses. Ah, oh, I'm going to make friends. I'm going to make friends with this, this last little ditch effort of time I have while I'm still in charge of the finances. So he called every one of his master's debtors to him. And he said to the first... And this is not considered a good thing. What it is considered is a clever thing. Keep this in mind. Jesus's parables are, are intelligent and they require thought, not just casually reading them and thinking we get them. So he calls every one of his master's debtors to him and said to the first, how much money do you owe my master? And he said, a hundred measures of oil. So he said to him, take your bill, sit down quickly and write 50. I'm cutting your debt in half because technically I'm still in charge over here. So he calls all the customers and he does this. Uh, then he said to another, how much do you owe? So he said, a hundred measures of wheat. And he said to him, take your bill and write 80. So the master commended him, the unjust steward. No, he's unjust. He's a bad guy. He's unjust. But he commends him because he had dealt shrewdly. You were clever. I got to give you points for clever. That was very clever. That was very clever. You're still a jerk. <laughs> but that was very clever. And then... Jesus then brings the application for the sons of this world are more shrewd in their generation than the sons of light. And I say to you, make friends for yourselves by unrighteous mammon that when you fail, they may receive you into an everlasting home. Now we're getting the parable form. Unrighteous mammon. That was, that was, uh, he's saying money. He's saying unrighteous money. Um, that's what the steward did. He took unrighteous, unrighteous wealth and he made friends for himself after he was going to lose his job. As a Christian, I think that Jesus is asking us to be clever and thoughtful in the way that we live our lives so that we might see more people get saved. Here's an application that you may or may not agree with, but I think it, I think it works. Many Christians, including myself, 
are a little bit too reliant upon providence when we do ministry. When I say providence, I mean, we just think if it's God, it will work. We don't think about how it should work to be functioning well. So two people do an outreach. One of them goes to the town. He sets up a tent. He does no advertising. He tells a few friends. He calls a couple churches maybe. And then he just does an outreach. And he thinks, Lord, you'll bring people if you want them to be here for my outreach. And three people show up and he evangelizes them. Uh, another guy, he does a different outreach. And for this outreach, he books a well-known band. And he coordinates with different churches. And he tells the churches, hey, I'm going uh, to be doing follow-up. Everybody who comes forward, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be giving them the addresses to your churches. I'll give you their names. And, and so then that church is like on board. They're like, wow, this might really help us to increase our member roles and draw more people in for discipleship. This, this could be a cool thing, you know? So then they, they get excited about it from the pulpit that's being discussed. In other words, there's a shrewdness that there, it doesn't mean it's immoral, but it was shrewd. It was thoughtful. It was careful. It was, it was wise. You know, when I do YouTube, I think carefully about how to be successful on YouTube. I don't know if you know this. Now, admittedly, that's not my only concern. There's all kinds of things I could do that would blow up my channel a lot more, but are just not part of what my vision is for how I will help minister to people. But I'm still thoughtful about thumbnails and about titles and about the way that I do my content. One of the reasons why I do live streams is because I think it's shrewdly wise to do live streams. It, it engages more people. It creates more buzz around the content. And then it allows me to reach more people to minister to people. So I think that when Jesus says, the sons of this generation, the sons of this world, they're more shrewd than the sons of light. I think the idea is this. Sometimes because we think we're in the light, we're in the right, we don't think about, we don't plan. We don't prepare. We're not careful. We're not thoughtful. We're not strategic in how we're doing things. Whereas those who are thinking they're not on God's side, they have only their ingenuity to work on. And so sometimes they work harder at those things. So this can be seen in like Christian filmmaking. Many times people have made Christian films that have been subpar. And they didn't work as hard at it. They didn't think as much about cinematography or good acting or, or very careful writing because they just thought they were doing the right thing. And I'm suggesting that Jesus knows this is a problem for us. So he mentions it with this parable. That's how I understand the parable. Um, yeah, you're doing the right thing. You're on God's side. But think about how to do it well, carefully, thoughtfully brilliantly hopefully and i'm getting a call another junk call mm -hmm. how do i know because that's all that ever happens nobody calls anybody anymore just telemarketers all right so because <laughs> they're shrewd um so yeah be be thoughtful be wise it's okay for like a ministry to think how how would i reach this community and draw more people to the sunday service and to be clever and thoughtful and still teach the word of god in fact, I, there's almost a divide. The more biblically grounded a church is, the worse they are at like advertising. <laughs> and the, the more like they're just kind of flighty and, and loose with scripture and really like what even are the essentials anymore, the better they tend to be at drawing crowds because that's what they're thinking about. I feel like we need to do both to be successful at, in, in doing ministry in the world, to be very to accomplish a lot, do both. There's nothing wrong with doing a market analysis to decide what you think is the best way to do an outreach in your local area. There's nothing wrong with that. Right? Just don't leave aside the essentials of the gospel. Do both. Okay, that's about all I got for you guys today. Lord bless you and keep you, make his face to shine upon you, give you peace. Um, we will be live um, next Friday is the next time for sure I'll be live. I'm not gonna be having much going on this week or 
as far as live videos on Monday. The Monday videos are off for a couple weeks. Then we're back on the Mark series. Um, I'll be uploading a few other videos to the channel, and I hope you find those to be a blessing. If you haven't done this, I recommend you go back and look through my old content. I have over 500 videos, and, and they're mostly just teaching videos I spend a lot of time prepping on. So if you find value in it, you may find there's like some gem there that would really bless you that you just didn't know existed. I've taught through the whole book of Romans, the whole book of First Peter. We're almost finished with the Gospel of Mark. Um, I've got series on evidence for the Bible, four-part series on the topic of homosexuality, which spent crazy amounts of hours preparing for. I've got topics on Hebrew Roots Movement and the progressive Christianity stuff and I don't even know, Catholicism, you name it, it's all there. I hope it's a blessing to you. Thanks for joining. Glad you guys came. Take care and thanks again to my mods. You guys are awesome.